The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Take your Bibles. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses again. I know I said about a year ago that we would be in the book of Ephesians for approximately one year. And those of you who are good at math can figure out that we've been about a year in the first half of Ephesians. And it seems like the more I study, the more I read, the slower I work my way through. I don't know about you, but I'm finding a lot of these studies personally very challenging. And that's why I tend to slow down and go in smaller sections because I want to unpack as much as I can of the text for all of us. And I do mean all of us. I mean me too. The Lord has been teaching me a lot of things as we've been studying through this. Let's read then Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. And the Bible says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray again, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you with the word of God open before us. And Father, we plead with you that in all that we do, glory would be to your name as we were singing. Glory be to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and glory be to the Spirit of God. Father, we come before you with hearts open and expectant, looking to hear what you would say to us. And so we cry out to you, O God, teach us your word. Change us and transform us by the power of your word. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the first uh, verse there. We saw the example of conduct worthy of the calling in the life of Paul. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. We saw the necessity of conduct that matches, that is worthy of our calling. He says, I urge you. And then we saw the calling that demands worthy conduct. And we looked at a number of different um, passages of Scripture to see what we have been called to. And we're going to look at those, recap them in a moment. But we also saw at the end of the last service, last Sunday morning, that This calling is impossible to do in our own strength. But praise the Lord that He has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to live the life that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Living that life requires walking in the Holy Spirit, praying in the Spirit, speaking in the Spirit, and so on. The whole secret, the whole key to the Christian life is two things. I'll give you the end of the message before we even get there. It's two things. Number one, it's focusing on Christ as the Spirit of God draws us to focus more on Him. And it's living in the power of the Holy Spirit as we focus on Christ. That's how God transforms us and changes us from the inside out and makes us more like Christ. Now, last week I used the analogy of young Ben Jackson, who is heading off to the military. He's been there for his first week. Today he'll be in church service, and we're glad for that. And I used, I sort of used a fictional rendering of what it would be like for him to go, and I used it to give the idea of conduct and so on. Our conduct must be in accordance with our calling. Not only does that conduct help us to reflect an accurate portrayal of Christ and His sufferings to the world, but conduct in keeping with our calling when we're all striving for it contributes to the unity of the fellowship. But I want you to imagine, again, this is just fictitious. I'm just using Ben as a, as a springboard for a story. Imagine poor Ben there in his army unit. And in his unit, there's this other bloke. We'll call him Bruce. 
Bruce is flawless in his conduct. Bruce is flawless in his dress. His uniform is always immaculate. You could blind a gnat at 40 paces with the shine off of this young man's boots. Everything about him is perfect in as far as his military conduct. He has mastered the uniform code of military conduct. But here's the problem. Bruce's attitude, his pride, his arrogance, his roughness with the other guys as unit. Nobody wants to be assigned to any detail alongside of Bruce because of his terrible attitude. Not only that, he makes absolutely no effort to work as a team player. He is always out to see that Bruce is the top of the pile. He's looking out for number one at whatever the cost. Bruce has mastered the conduct, but his attitude is tearing down the unity of his military unit. As we read the text in front of us, verses uh, 1, 2, and 3 there, we can see this Christ-like conduct is also part of several requirements for the unity of the Spirit. And the question, of course, is what is the unity of the Spirit? What does Paul mean by the unity of the Spirit? And he uses that phrase midway through uh, verse number 3. Well, first of all, unity of the Spirit is not uniformity. We are not all to look and think and do the same thing. The body has many parts with different roles and functions, but it only has one head from whom each part receives their call and their leading as to how they're to function within the body. No role, no function is of greater or lesser importance than any other. We are call called, all of us are called within the unit each in our own roles with our own giftings, but having one in common, and that is Christ. Secondly, the unity of the Spirit is not conformity. We do not pressure each other to do what we think they should do on our own authority. Instead, we proclaim the truth of the Bible, and we call everybody to be transformed by that biblical truth. We also allow the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of each individual member to move them to function in the roles that God has for them. But don't miss the point here. We don't simply allow anybody in the fellowship to do whatever they want, regardless of what the Bible teaches. We proclaim the truth of Scripture. We hold fast to the truth of Scripture. The reason why Paul takes verses 4, 5, and 6 to talk about all those ones there, he's talking about an incredible condensed version of the truth of Scripture there that's absolutely essential for unity. We're going to look at that next week. But what we do is we proclaim the truth. We hold fast the truth. We each, before the Lord, live out in our own lives the truth of Scripture. Behavior... Conduct that is outside of biblical truth for how either the individual believer or the church is to function requires, number one, a lot of prayer for the individuals. It requires correction from the Word of God. It requires admonition from the Word of God. It requires exhortation from the Word of God to bring that believer and the whole church into alignment with the truth. The body has one head who is Christ, from whom and to whom we are each responsible to obey and follow as he leads us. Well, that's what the unity of the body is not. It's not uniformity and it's not conformity, pressing into a mold. The unity of the, sport, the spirit is unity that is characterized by the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit in all of our lives. It comes about, that unity comes about by each of us being transformed as individual believers from the inside out. The Spirit of God works on the heart of each individual believer, changing the central core of their person so that our thinking, our attitudes, our habits are being transformed from self-centered to Christ-centered. Christ first, others second. Yourself last, but in all of those things, Christ always at the center of what we are doing. The unity of the Spirit happens when the Holy Spirit works to focus each believer on Christ. 
Some groups within Christendom make a big deal about the Spirit of God. Okay, He is a person of the Trinity. One of the three persons. But one thing you must always remember, the Holy Spirit has a very particular role. His role is to always point us to Christ. To point Christ out. To take us the Scriptures and point those to Christ. So we always see Christ. It's His role. That's His job. And the unity of the Spirit happens when the Holy Spirit works to focus each believer on Christ, when the Spirit of God works to conform each believer to Christ, to transform them, sorry. Unity is achieved when we're all focused on Christ. He is the head of the body. He's the groom and we're the bride. In the old uh, Brethren Church, we used to sing a great old hymn, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. In other words, we're not to be busy looking at ourselves and looking at each other. We're to be busy focusing and fastening our attention on Christ and Him alone. Unity happens when we're all all focused on the Lord Jesus. Unity will never happen while we're all trying to attain to a different standard of conduct, a different truth, a different Lord. Unity happens when we all aim to conduct ourselves to the same calling, to the same Lord and leader, to the same truth, each in our different ways. Let me illustrate like this. Um, Commander-in-chief of the armed forces, right? In the United States, that's the president of the United States. I'm not sure exactly who that is here in Australia. But the commander-in-chief, we have one, and he has one objective. And the commander-in-chief issues commands, and so he phones up the artillery, and he tells them where and when to shoot the big guns. And then he calls up the cavalry and tells them where and when to roll the tanks and the armored personnel characters. And then he phones up the Navy and says, sail the ships in this direction and go about there working in this way. And then he phones up the medical corps and says, you want to set up your aid stations here, 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 and here. And then he phones up the engineers and says, you got to build this bridge and blow that one up. You see, there's one commander. He has one objective. There's all kinds of different ways that all of us contribute to working towards that one objective. You might be in the artillery of the Christian life. And God says, I want you to go over here. And you're contributing to the objective by doing what you do. Or maybe you're in the Marine Corps. And God says, I want you to go over here and I want you to do this. And that's how you're going to contribute to our one objective. All these different branches of the military, and they're all working for one supreme commander-in-chief, and they're all working to attain one objective. That's exactly what it's like to be a church in the body of Christ. We all have different functions and roles. Your role isn't any different than mine. Well, not different, sorry. Your role is more important or less important than mine. It is a different role. It's a different function. But we have one commander-in-chief and one objective. And we're all working to achieve that one objective under his command and leading and guidance. Christ is the object and standard for our unity. He is the one that we all have in common. Koinonia. You know that word? It means fellowship. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Sorry. Um, but it's the kunania. I, I won't try and do it again. Uh, it, it just means commonality. So fellowship means commonality. What do we all have in common? We have Christ. And unity is achieved, brothers and sisters, when we're all trying to live for Christ. We're all focusing on Christ. We're all striving together in the power of the Spirit of God to achieve the objective that He has set up. The glory of His name and the proclaiming of the gospel to all nations and making disciples of all men for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, back to our text. I want us to see four things that Paul gives us as necessary for unity. Number one, we saw last week, it's Christ-like conduct. So we'll just briefly recap that in a moment. Very brief. Number two, Christ-like attitudes that are necessary for the unity of the Spirit. And we'll spend pretty much all our time on that one. And then Christ-honoring diligence is necessary to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And that's verse number three. And then verses four through six, Christ-revealing truth. And that will definitely be next week. So why is unity so important? One of the tragedies of the church is that there has been so much in the way of disunity inside of churches. 
Disunity happens for a whole number of reasons. The true spiritual church is a mixture of mature and immature believers. Older, wiser, godly men and women and younger, not so wise, not so godly, new in the faith believers, they're still part of the church, but that mixture of immature and mature can cause disunity. The visible church itself is a mixture of both believers and non-believers. Jesus said that there would be goats among the sheep. Jesus said that there would be tares amongst the wheat. The church, thirdly, has failed to teach the biblical truths of the Christian faith, and the church has failed to preach the gospel of God's grace. The gospel must be preached, and it must be unpacked into every area of our life, in our homes, our marriages, our families, our business, our work, our personal lives, all of it. The gospel impacts every single part of that. And I got a little note on my notes that says, don't go off into a major sidetrack here, because that would be very easy for me just to dive off and preach on that for half an hour. But one of the sad things, one of the reasons why there's disunion in the church is because we failed to preach the gospel and we failed to teach the Bible. The church has overemphasized truth in some cases to the neglect of practice. And so we've got great Pharisees, churches full of godly, not godly, uh, Pharisaical people who look on some levels to be godly, but their practice, their life is anything but. We've got churches who have overemphasized the practice of things to the neglect of truth. And so what we have is shallow, easily led astray Christianettes who know a little bit of Christ but have no idea about the deep, rich truths of the Bible. And so they're easily led astray into all kinds of mess and nonsense. Pride creeps in when performance is exalted over worship. Pride creeps in around a human personality other than Christ. Self-centered vying for place and prominence drives wedges between brothers and sisters. Disunity happens because none of us are perfect. That's the other side of it. Disunity happens because we are still in the process of becoming and being made more like Christ. None of us has arrived. We're all learning. We all have things to grow and change in. Like I said a few minutes ago, this week has been a confronting week with me because the Lord has given me this message to prepare, the one for tonight to prepare, and to stand on a graveside of an unbeliever with Christians on both, and non-Christians on both sides of that grave. I've got growing to do. God is teaching me things. God is using some of you to teach me great things about the faith and how to live this Christian life. And that's the way it should be. But we're all to be striving to grow because that growth then promotes unity. It's like a triangle. And Christ is the very top. And all of us are down here. And as we're striving to grow towards Christ, look what's happening. We're getting closer and closer and closer together. That unity is becoming more and more and more pronounced. Here's the danger. The easiest thing to do is to look for modern psychological ways to manufacture a shallow form of unity. But we must, as a church of Jesus Christ, we must strive to understand biblical unity. We must strive to practice biblical unity. We all, each and every one of us, must strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, so as to be as Christ-like as we can, and then unity will begin to happen. And by the way, as soon as unity begins to happen, there is a little fellow with horns that loves to dive into the middle of a church and start stirring up all the mud off the bottom. As soon as we start seeing believers growing and believers changing, people getting saved and things happening, the devil hates that. And he'll get in. And he'll find the weak spot of pride in you and pride in me. He'll find the weak spot of harshness in me. He'll find the weak spot of an intolerance and impatience. And he'll begin to poke away at that pride or that lack of gentleness. Or poke away until I get irritated with my brother and I start to grumble and mumble. And you know, next thing you know, you little, you little festering wound over here. Before you know it, the unity of the body is beginning to be crowded away. 
And that's why Paul says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. That's why he makes such a big deal about this. He says, I implore you, I urge you, I'm pleading with you to walk in a conduct that is fitting with the calling you've received with, with all humility. Halfway through yesterday, I thought to myself, Lord, couldn't you just said with 68% unity or humility? Or how about, Lord, maybe 50% gentleness? Because I'm not the gentlest guy at times. And I can handle 50% gentleness a lot better than all gentleness and all humility and all tolerance for one another in love. So we're called to these things. Number one, Christ-like conduct is necessary for the unity of the Spirit. We saw this last week. What is Christ-like conduct? It's Christ-like because it's conduct that is worthy of His calling. Christ calls us into His kingdom and fellowship with Himself. Cause call, let's say it again. Christ calls us through the gospel of grace. Christ calls us with an irrevocable call, and He calls us to Christ-like conduct. We're called to eternal life. We're called to freedom from sin and slavery. We're called to peace with God and peace with each other. We're called to be holy in all our conduct. We're called to follow Christ. We're called to suffer with Christ. And we're called to love, as we were just singing, to love like Christ loves. And we got to the end of that. There's no way any of us can do all these things without the power of the Spirit of God at work in us. Paul in the New Testament calls us to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit. Why? Because that's the only way we can live this life. Brothers and sisters, the secret to the Christian life is the power of the Spirit of God that fills us and enables us and equips us to live for Jesus, that points us constantly to Christ to see Him above all. Second main point is this, conduct yourselves with Christ-like attitudes. 4 verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. These are Christ-like attitudes that He displayed toward us. Humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. We must conduct ourselves with Christ-like humility. It is humility that defeats unity, destroying pride. So what is true humility? Humility is to value or assess oneself in a right and true manner in view of our own sinfulness. It's to have a right view, not a low view, not a high view, a right view of yourself, a correct understanding of who you are. And you know, we are all sinners and we are all saved by God's grace alone. It is God's grace that saved wretches. We were just singing that a few minutes ago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We were wretches and God saved us. There's nothing about our salvation, our standing before God, for which we may take the credit. Nothing. As soon as we begin to think, well, you know, I'm a little bit better than so-and-so over there. That's pride. And pride will begin to drive a wedge between us and unity gets torn down a little bit. We are sinners. We were sinners before God, but now we are sons and daughters by God's grace, only by His grace. We were once destined for God's wrath, but now we're going to share in Christ's glory. Why? Because you did something or I did something? We accomplished something? Not a lot. No way. Not a chance. We were destined for wrath, and now we're going to share His glory only by God's grace. We were created in the image of God, but we fell into sin and disobedience. But by God's, by God's immense grace, we have been made alive, we have been regenerated, and we are being recreated, transformed from the inside out into Christ's image. Nothing in all those things gives us any right to take any credit whatsoever for what we have. Humility is to see ourselves as God sees us. To take a look in the mirror and go, but for the grace of God, I would go straight to hell. And that's a tough one. Because we're programmed by the world around us 
in ways that you can't even imagine how subtle it gets and how bold it gets to tell you that you are the most important person. You're the number one. You have to look out for yourself because you have to, you, it's all about you. Listen to modern psychology, modern thinking. It's all about me. And the Bible, the gospel says it's not about you. It's all about Christ. Notice that our humility is a Christ-like humility. The Lord Jesus Christ was humble and lowly in heart. The Bible says in Matthew 11, this is Jesus' own words, Come and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, I myself urge you by the humility and gentleness of Christ. If any had reason to be proud or boastful, absolutely rightly so, it was Christ and Christ alone. But look at what the Bible says. Take your Bibles and flip over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 and verse 5. You know this passage well, but I think if you're like me, you probably missed Paul's main point, and it's not actually Christ. Christ is the, is the description, the example for his main point. His main point is verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's his point. You have Christ's attitude. And then verse 6 to 11 gives you a description of that attitude. He says, Who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Don't miss the point. You have this attitude. That's his command. What's that attitude look like? Like Christ. Christ existed as God the Son, truly God. So we have been made sons and daughters. It can never be taken away from us. Christ emptied himself. He laid aside his glory. So we must also empty ourselves and consider ourselves as nothing in God's sight. Christ took the form of a bondservant. So we must also be willing to serve one another out of love for him and love for each other. We didn't deserve Christ's love. But he loved us anyway. He loved us because he wanted to show his great grace and his great love to us. He didn't love you because you deserved it. If you ever hear this preached as the gospel, stand up and walk out. Jesus loved you so much because he valued you so highly that he had to save you. That's heresy. It's not true. There was nothing in us that was desirable. All of us had gone astray. All of us had gone our own way. We had no desire, not one inch of desire for God. But he loved us anyway. So he could show his grace to those who are completely undeserving. Listen, just as Christ... He knew he existed in the form of God and so also we... We have been called sons and daughters. He can never lose his deity. We can never lose our salvation. He emptied himself. He laid aside that glory. He laid aside everything that would give that beautiful display of his deity that he might come to earth as his servant. So we must empty ourselves so that we might serve and love one another. Someone made a point. I was listening to a sermon a few weeks ago. And he said, you know... Christ was exalted to the very heights. But in order to be exalted to the very heights, he had to humble himself from deity. He didn't lose his deity, of course, but he had to come as a man. That's an infinite distance. No human measuring could measure that. And then he had to empty himself of his glory. Then he had to take on himself the form of a servant and then the form of a slave and finally go all the way down to the absolute depths and hang on a cross and die. 
Therefore, because of that, God also highly exalted him. And the speaker was saying, listen, brothers and sisters, God recalls us to do the same thing, to empty ourselves, to put aside that pride, to humble ourselves, to condescend to each other, to get down on the ground with each other, as it were, to walk alongside of each other, to love and serve one another in love for God and love for one another. There is no place for pride. Paul himself set an example of humility in his serving the Lord. In Acts 20, verses 18 and 19, it said, When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole term, whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Paul gave us that example. He served the Lord with all humility. That's his words recorded and inspired by the Spirit of God in the Scriptures. Peter called us to humility in how we respond to each other, especially in responding to unfair, unkind, and ungodly behavior. Listen to this. He says in 1 Peter 3, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing." I tripped over that. That verse is a stumbling block under my feet. You know why? Because I love to get the last word. Don't believe me, ask Hev. It's true. I love to get the la- I love to fire back the final shot. I love to come back with a cutting comment to slice someone down a little bit. Someone does evil me, someone cuts me off on the highway, and my first instinct, my first reaction is always return evil for evil. And I kept hitting that verse, I kept coming up as I was studying through this of the week, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. And that goes absolutely against my nature. I just got this, ooh, want to get back. And you know, and, and the Lord really convicted me of that. How quickly do you fire back off a shot at somebody? Remember the Lord Jesus? They heaped abuse on him and he spoke not a word. They put a crown of thorns on his head and beat him over the head with a stick. They put a robe on him and mocked him, bowing the knee in front of him. And he never opened his mouth. They dragged him out up a road and put him on a cross and nailed him to it. And his words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have no idea, brothers and sisters, what real humility is like until we can stand and look at the cross. And we can hear those words. We're going to look at Mark at the, at the life of the centurion probably next Sunday night who stood at the bottom of the cross. He watched everything Jesus had done. I think he was there during the scourging. I think he was there when they marched him out of the city. I think he was there as he stood and listened to all the words Jesus said. And he said at the end that truly this man was the Son of God. The powerful testimony of that man as he saw how Jesus died. And Jesus showed immense humility and grace and kindness. Brothers and sisters, we get slighted and poked at by each other. And I would argue that 90% of the time, it's unintended. People mistake a comment for something. You didn't mean it that way, it just got misunderstood. Sometimes, I'll admit, sometimes we do say things with the intention to hurt. May God convict us when we do. How quickly do we respond? How much different would our churches be, brothers and sisters, if we took that verse out of 1 Peter, verses 8 and 9, chapter 3, 1 Peter, be harmonious. I love the sound of the violins when they play. I love when Sunith, I think it is, takes up that next level and he creates that beautiful harmony in the sound of the violins. If Sunith gets the tuning wrong, 
the sound won't be quite so harmonious. It'll probably shatter my eardrum. But when they're in harmony, tuned to the same source, so that the cello and the violin, the viola and the piano and the guitar and whatever, if they're all tuned to the same source, when they play the different notes of the chord, it's a rich, resonant sound. That's humility. That's unity. Harmonious. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Listen, humility promotes unity because then we see ourselves as Christ sees sees us. Humility promotes unity because it enables us to see that not only are you nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, so am I. Nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. And brothers and sisters, if we lose sight of that, there will be constant tension and friction and rubbing and we'll be constantly fighting each other. But when we keep sight of the fact that we are all sinners saved by grace, we see ourselves as God sees us, then we begin to become more like Christ and that unity can begin to happen. Humility is essential for unity of the Spirit because of pride. Pride draws others' attention away from Christ. Pride seeks honor and recognition from the rest of the body. Pride tears away at unity because instead of focusing in love and worship and service on Christ, we're focusing on ourselves and each other. Listen, I cannot humble you and you cannot humble me. You can humble me from the outside. Make me look foolish. That's easy. But to humble my heart, that's a job I have to do and that God has to do in me. I must humble myself and you must humble yourself because, brothers and sisters, there is one who can humble us all and that is God himself. And when God humbles a man, it is often a great pain and with lasting consequences. I was reading the story of David this week and his affair with Bathsheba and the child. And I began to read the sad stories one after the other after the other of the way that that sin affected his whole family. And the scene of David in my mind's eye as he walks up that mountain and he's barefoot and his head's covered and he is quoting a psalm. I can't remember which one it is, but there's a grieving and a lament in his heart. He has been humbled before God. Brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with us all, me and all of you as well, to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ that God would not have to humble us. I've seen far too many stories on the internet and TV, going back to when I was an apprentice carpenter, of men in ministry and public ministry who had great followings of people who were preaching the gospel. And then the news flashes across the screen, caught with a prostitute, caught in an adultery, caught stealing money. And the, and the testimony and the effect on the church is devastating. It all comes about because of pride and a refusal to humble ourselves before the living God. The unity of the Spirit in the church requires humility. And I don't mind. You want to know where I failed as a pastor more than once? Right there. I've let pride creep in and I've said something to somebody that I shouldn't have said and spent months, in some cases, years regretting it. How much God could do with this church if we were all humble before the Lord as a group of people together, on our faces before God, striving to be like Him, to walk in the Spirit, to please Him. You couldn't close the doors. People would be pouring in here to see what the difference is. They want to see what makes us different. Christ-like humility. Second thing is this, is Christ-like gentleness. Gentleness is the absence of harshness. It's it's soft speaking. It's a mildness in manner. It's a kindness and manner with one another. 
Christ is, of course, the ultimate example. G, uh, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 2, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. The implication there is Christ as a high priest is a gentle high priest. He was tempted in every way just like we are and yet without sin. He was able to deal with us gently. That verse in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Christ is gentle with us as he shepherds us and leads us and teaches us. I was watching a TV show back in Canada before we even moved over here, and one of the characters was describing what it means to move sheep. And she said, you don't drive sheep. You drove them. I thought, what's the difference? It's one letter. And she said, no, in driving sheep, you push them along at the faster pace. But in droving sheep, you gently move them along at the slowest pace. It's a gentle, careful moving of the sheep. If they don't get fatigued or dehydrated or confused or frightened, you move them slowly. And Christ is gentle with us as he shepherds us and leads us and teaches us. Christ is gentle as he deals with our weaknesses and failures. How many times has the Spirit of God impressed upon your heart a sin that you have committed for the 4,000th time? And the gentle voice of the Spirit of God says, you need to forgive, you need to confess that. That was wrong. That hurt me that hurt your brother and sister and you go oh not again he's gentle he's gentle with us as a you with a nursing lamb he's gentle as we have sorry christ is gentle and we are to have the same gentle attitude towards one another listen to what paul said he said the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace patience kindness goodness Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. He's gentle. The work of the Spirit of God in us produces a gentleness. I've mentioned Uncle Jack to you a number of times, a man I studied with for a number of years in Canada. Uncle Jack was a logger. And when youth group, when this is when Jack was probably in his 60s, and we were all in our 19, 20, 21, and we thought we were as tough as could come, and we'd wrestle Uncle Jack. That was a mistake. Uncle Jack was this gentle, quiet guy, and he could tie us in knots. He was tough as you could imagine. And more than once, we got into a scrap with Uncle Jack in the church basement. It's all good fun. We weren't fighting. We were just wrestling around as young men do. And he would just put us on the floor. You met Uncle Jack, you'd think that is the gentlest guy I've ever met. Quiet. And soft, but when he preached, he would stand there and he would just talk about this volume all the way through his sermon, quietly sharing the Word of God. I don't think I ever heard him raise his voice ever in the 20 years I've known him. Gentle. The Lord's servant is called to be gentle with the sheep. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, the 25, the Bible says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will give them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. The Lord's servant... Now, in specifics, Timothy, or sorry, Paul is talking about eldership and pastor ministry right there. But in specific, or in generality, sorry, everybody who wants to serve the Lord, there's your requirements. Gentle, able to be taught, able to teach. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2 gives it that same calling to all people. He says, Paul says to Titus, remind the people, so the whole congregation, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Humility in all of us would radically change this church, would it not? Gentleness in all of us would radically change this church and every other church out there. 
First Peter 3 talks about the godly woman. And, and uh, Peter exhorts her, exhorts her to show the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's 1 Peter 3, 1 to 4. It is necessary for the unity of the spirit in the church to deal gently with one another. It's gentleness that wins over the brother or sister as we minister to them. It's gentleness that betrays a Christ likeness to each other so we can listen and hear as our brother and our sister ministers to us. We had a couple of elders in the church when I grew up, well, 30 years ago in Canada. And one of them was, an, was a dad. He had teenage sons. And I remember when he called me alongside him one day, put his big arm around me. His, his name was Toos Cappers, and he was six foot eight. Like he had eight inches on me, and he was twice my size. He was a huge Dutchman. And when he put his arm around you to tell you something, you listened because you know, he could crush you with his arm. <laughs> And he would quietly come alongside and he'd say in his strong Dutch accent, you know, Nelson, you need to do And he would off he'd go and he'd tell me what he needed to tell me. There was another elder that used to come alongside and, and in a condescending and reproachful wagging of his finger. I can't remember a thing that guy said, but I can remember some things that Toos told me. Because he was gentle. He came alongside in a gentle manner, in a loving, fatherly manner. Same with Uncle Jack. Gentleness wins over brothers and sisters as we minister to them. Paul says in Galatians 6, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Harshness betrays pride too. Because it says I'm better than you. That's why pride, the humility issue, is the first one that needs to come up in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. I said it before, one area in my life that I failed more often than any other is this area. Gentleness with people and pride. And by God's grace, He's allowed me to carry on in ministry for as long as I have. And He keeps working away and working away and working away on my life. And my plea is that he will work on all of our lives to change us all, to make us more like Christ. The unity of the Spirit requires that we possess and conduct ourselves with the attitudes that Paul is listing. It's not necessary, not enough, sorry. It's not enough to know the truth and live in a right conduct. It is necessary, and Paul urges that conduct, we conduct ourselves with all humility, not partial humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, and showing tolerance for one another in love. Roddy Hall over at Village Church there, my friend. He's a pastor. He often says to me, you know, Nelson, it's not enough to just do the right thing. It's how we do it that is equally, if not more important, how we do it. Do we do it with gentleness and humility and love? Or do we walk around beating on the sheep with our rods like a stick? Doesn't work. I wish we had more time to go in the other attitudes there. The time is going away. How do we take on these attitudes? You say, it's not, yeah, I'm telling you, be humble. I'm telling you, be gentle. How do we do that? How do we become more humble? How do we become more gentle? Yes, there is a willful, voluntary action in ourselves that humbles ourselves before the others. There is a striving to be like Christ to deal gently, to think before we speak, to ask ourselves, if we were speaking to the Lord Jesus when we said this, would we say it the same way? Probably not. But you know what it is? The answer is really simple. We become what we worship. See, what do you mean by that? We become what we worship. If we worship and love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ, we will become more like him. The more time we spend focusing on Him, the more time we spend listening to His words, the more time we spend with Him in prayer, listening to Him speak to us through the Spirit of God in our own hearts, the more we'll become like Him. There's another, re another reason, another answer goes alongside this one, and it's the issue of discipleship. The reason why 
discipleship is a lifelong thing. It doesn't just start and go for a few weeks or a few months and you, you do a little book study and then you tick all the boxes. Yeah, you've done your discipleship. The discipleship study goes the whole length of your life. And you know what I lament? I said to Heather just this week, I lament that Uncle Jack isn't just around the corner. I can go and sit in his study and we can study together and I can hang around with this godly man. There is a calling on our lives, brothers and sisters, to spend time with older, godly, wiser, mature saints. You know why? Because we can learn from them. We see how they follow Christ. We see the love they have for Christ. We see the joy they have in God. And we begin to become like them as we spend time with them. But even more so, obviously, as we spend time with the Lord Jesus, we become like Him. Paul said rightly, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we spend time with older, godly, wiser men. If you don't have in your life an older, godly, wiser person than you are in your life, speaking into your life, I plead with you, go find one. Look long and look hard. The elders in the church and the elders' wives in the church, that's part of their role. To walk alongside, not that we're better, not that we're wiser in some cases, mine anyway, but because God's given us that responsibility to walk alongside and disciple and shepherd the sheep. The same answer we gave last week to the impossibility of our calling to conduct ourselves in a Christ-like manner, it is to walk, to live, to speak, to pray in the Spirit. The secret to living the Christian life the secret to radically transform churches, the secret to revival sweeping our churches, the city and the town we live in, it's all the same thing. We focus on Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must think like Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must live Christ-like lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. We speak like Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must be constantly striving to put off that old man. Put off the sin and the, and the weights that hinder us from walking with Christ and following hot after Him. We must be striving at the same time to put on the new man, to put on Christ. It's Christ-like conduct, it's Christ-like humility, and it's Christ-like gentleness. Focusing on Christ. Worship of Christ, time with Christ, walking with Him and becoming like Him. That is what builds and preserves unity in our churches. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. How is your life? How is your walk with the Lord? How's your pride? I don't know about you, but... I have taken a beating this week over these things. And my plea isn't just that you take a beating on Sunday morning and you come in here, but it's to be challenged and encouraged and spurred on to walk a little closer to Christ, to follow a little closer, to be more like Him, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit portraying Christ to each other and to the world around us. That's what we're being called to, brothers and sisters. Okay. Let's uh, stand. We're going to pray together, and then we'll sing the benediction.